Hi, everybody. I'm Abadol Yakbar from See Something, Say Something. This episode, we're going to be doing something a little different, which I feel like we've been saying that a lot, but it's true. This season has been a lot of fun. We've been doing a lot of new things. We're going to be bringing you two different stories about Trump's immigration policies. We're going to talk to a lawyer about the new travel ban, and we're also going to travel to Michigan to talk to some immigrant communities. So later in the episode, you're going to be hearing a conversation with Bahir Azmi, who's the legal director for the Center for Constitutional Rights. We're going to be talking about the new proclamation of travel restrictions, also known as Travel Ban 3.0. And he's going to talk with us about why he thinks these new restrictions can still be called a Muslim ban, even though North Korea and Venezuela have been added to the list. The first story, though, is about a group of Iraqi Christians living in Michigan who were targeted by ICE in a raid over the summer. Before the original travel ban, Iraq was one of a handful of countries that wouldn't accept deportees from the United States. But when it showed up on the first list of seven banned countries, Iraq decided to make a deal. They said, take us off the list and we'll take the U.S.'s deportees. And since then, 288 Iraqis living in the U.S. have been picked up for deportation. So this next story is going to come to you from our producer, Megan Dietry, who went to Michigan to talk with their families and their community leaders. Most of these people come from a religious and ethnic minority from Iraq, the Chaldean Christians. They do not identify as Arab, although they are often misidentified as such, and are victims of a lot of ISIS's persecution in Iraq. What you're hearing is a Facebook Live video, and in it, people are gathered behind a chain-link fence outside of ICE headquarters in downtown Detroit. People got kids. They got sick parents. They're there watching for family members and friends who'd been picked up by ICE earlier in the day. Don't sign any papers! A middle-aged woman is escorted into the building. She's wearing a pink shirt and jeans, and her hands are cuffed behind her back. June 11th, I was with my kids. My phone was broken. I haven't seen my mom since she was in a hospital bed, which was a week prior. The woman in the video, Jihan Asker, is one of 114 Iraqis picked up in a mass raid on Sunday, June 11th. And this is her daughter, Lena. Then I get a call from my brother, and he's telling me, Mom's not answering the phone. Um, We finally found out over a Facebook video that my mom was arrested. And that was the last time I see my mom was on a video. Almost everyone arrested in this raid is part of Michigan's Chaldean Christian community. They're a minority group from Iraq that speaks Aramaic. On the day of the raid, I showed up at people's favorite coffee shops outside of their churches. The community was caught totally off guard. One man answered the door in his underwear. Another one was out to ice cream with his nine-year-old daughter. Ice knew exactly where everyone would be, down to which church they went to. Huge raids like this are common, but until recently, they didn't happen in this community. Iraq used to be one of the countries that didn't cooperate with the U.S. over deportations, meaning even if the U.S. wanted someone gone, they had nowhere to send them. And then the travel ban happened. Iraq was on that original travel ban list. And in exchange for being taken off the list, they agreed to accept anyone the U.S. wanted to send back. Suddenly, 
all of the native Iraqis eligible for deportation are facing the very real risk that it finally might happen. The Chaldean Christian community has been fleeing the violence in Iraq since the 1970s. The largest group of them in the U.S. lives in Metro Detroit. The community says it's around 120,000 people. You may have heard about Iraqi Christians during the campaign because when he was a candidate, Donald Trump talked about them all the time. ISIS rounding up what it calls Nation of the Cross, Nation of the Cross, in a campaign of absolute and total genocide. We cannot let this evil continue. He even suggested giving Middle Eastern Christians visa priority after he took office. As it relates to persecuted Christians, do you, do you see them as kind of a priority here? As yes. A, as a per, you do? Yes, they've been horribly treated. Everybody was persecuted, in all fairness, but they were chopping off the heads of everybody, but more so the Christians. And I thought it was very, very unfair. So we are going to help them. And Here's what Vice President Mike Pence has to say about what Christians are facing in Iraq and Syria. And I believe ISIS is guilty of nothing short of genocide against people of the Christian faith, and it is time the world called it by name. Chaldean Christians did not expect to be targeted in an immigration raid under this administration. It was about 6 p.m., we started getting a lot of phone calls and um, text messages and Facebook messages that there were raids happening throughout the day. Um, families were calling saying that their, uh, you know, their fathers, their husbands were getting picked up. And we started seeing like a pattern that there was more than, you know, just a few people. Nadine Kalasho is the director of Code Legal Aid. It's a nonprofit that works with refugees and immigrant families. Her offices are in this charter school in the suburbs of northern Detroit, where a lot of the students are Chaldean Christian. I met her at the school, and the hallways are covered in maps of the Mesopotamia and posters in Aramaic. Her family owns and runs the school, and on the day of the raid, it acted as a gathering space for the community. So we decided let's open up um, and we would serve as a type of command center for these families so they could come and get information. And then in turn, we could also take information to see what can be done next. Her brother went down to ICE headquarters to talk to the families there and Nadine got on social media. They were flooded with requests for help. They were there until 5 a.m. And by morning, this is what they knew. The folks that got picked up were people with roots in America. They'd been here since they were kids or teenagers. Jihan left Iraq when she was just five years old. She grew up in Michigan, got married, had three kids, got divorced. She spent her life as a single mother, supporting her family. She's been a constant presence in her daughter Lena's life. She was everything. <laughs> she would clean people's houses. She also worked in a physical therapy office. She worked at McDonald's. My mom hopped around and worked everywhere. She was there every time I went into labor. My mom was at the hospital. She'd be the first person there. Everyone who was arrested had a final order of deportation. A few had overstayed visas, but the vast majority of them had some kind of conviction on their record. Over half of it was for drug-related crimes. Two-thirds of it was nonviolent. A lot of this had happened years or decades ago. Since then, very, very few had ever been repeat offenders. But even more importantly, 
everybody had been complying with ICE. They'd check in once a year, doing whatever ICE asked. Jihan was in trouble with the law only once, in 2003, when she tried to cash a bad check. She got charged with a misdemeanor fraud, was given probation and a $150 fine, and then the whole thing was removed from her record. But that wasn't ICE's only problem with her. She missed an asylum hearing when she was 10 years old. That means she's been up for deportation since 1986 and has been complying with ICE's supervision requirements for 31 years. She checked in with ICE every year, and it was always fine, until four days before the raid. She'd gone to her usual appointment, and no one was there. So everything seemed on track yes. and safe and totally normal. Everything seemed on track um, until June 7th when that officer wasn't there. She called me freaking out. She was like, Lena, I feel like I'm going to get in trouble. Like, she knew it was going to happen. I was like, Mom, you're not going to get in trouble. I wasn't thinking nothing of it. You've been okay for this long. Why would they mess with you now? ICE holds raids at its discretion and has arrested people in sweeps who are undocumented, whether they're the intended target or not. I would say 99% of them came here legally. Um, you know, a lot of them married American citizens. And after three years of being married to an, a U.S. citizen, you can apply to become a citizen yourself, a lot of those people got denied. And a lot of them who came here on, you know, fiancé visas, they never uh, got married to that fiancé. And upon trying to switch their status, you know, they were in limbo. But also, everyone needs to understand that it's not easy. It's not easy to change your status, and many times you get denied. I would say majority of those who were detained have exhausted a lot of their options in immigration court. Many Iraqi Christians who came to the U.S. were fleeing violence of some kind. And now, there's ISIS. Wissam Nayoum is a lawyer and a leader in the Chaldean Christian community. He describes one of the ways that ISIS targets Chaldean Christians in Iraq, by marking their doors with a sign. You know, when ISIS went into Mosul, they marked our homes um, with the slang term Nazarene, which um, is a slang term, you know, against Christians. And they marked every home you know, s similar to what you would have seen, the, you know, the Nazis do. And the people that told them, you know, whose home was Christian was their uh, Sunni Muslim neighbors. Wissam says that because this was a high-profile raid, it's going to be a high-profile deportation. There is no way to get 200 people back to Iraq without someone noticing. People are going to be associated as Chaldean Catholic Assyrians, so... For that reason alone, they're going to be targeted. For the reason that they're viewed by Iraqis as Americans, they're going to be targeted. These guys have tattoos of Jesus and Mary, crosses, rosaries, all over them. Easy targets. They don't speak Arabic. To the extent that they speak another language, it's Aramaic, which is our language, which isn't really spoken in those cities and is a dead giveaway. And again, they're mostly going to be speaking English. In total... 1,407 Iraqis have been given their final order of deportation and could be sent back to one of the most dangerous places in the world. For now, ICE has detained 288 Iraqis nationwide, and that's Muslims, Chaldean, but also other minority groups that get targeted back home, like Shia, Kurds, and Yazidis. By the way, the U.S. 
can't actually deport anyone back to a country where they'll be persecuted because it signed the UN's Convention Against Torture. To stop the immediate deportations, the ACLU has filed a class action lawsuit asking that Iraqis get a chance to prove that they will be persecuted if they're sent back. This is University of Michigan law professor Margot Schlanger, who argued the case in court. I guess for me, the real question raised by this case is, why does ICE want to deport people into harm's way? Why not give them time to show that deportation is too dangerous? Why hurry? So a federal judge heard this, and he grants a couple stays of deportation, and then finally just says, hey, you can't deport anyone until we figure out what's going on. Everyone gets a chance to prove that the conditions have changed and that it's too dangerous to be sent back. And in order to do that, ICE has to hand over everyone's case files. Once these people have their case files, they've got 90 days to petition the court to reconsider their case. It's been over a month, and ICE hasn't handed over any of that paperwork. Meanwhile, just two people have been released from the detainment centers. One is someone who they picked up on a clerical error, and the other is Jihan. Before she was arrested, she had just had surgery for a kidney stone. And during her detention, she missed an appointment to get the stent removed. The county jail couldn't get ICE to sign off on her medical procedure. For two months, all they gave her were painkillers. And when she started developing a kidney stones in her other kidney, she was finally released. ICE isn't supposed to hold people indefinitely. Every 90 days, they have to review a case and decide whether that person is a flight risk or a security threat. And if they aren't, they have to be released. It's been four months since the raids, and there are now 286 people who are still in detention centers and could be there for a year or two years before their case gets into immigration courts, when it'll be possible for their lawyers to get them out. Maybe ICE wants to keep people in detention to discourage them from pursuing their cases. I mean, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe what ICE is doing is saying, you don't want to file a motion to reopen because the whole time you litigate that motion to reopen, we're going to keep you in detention and you're going to lose anyway, they say. And so your choice, they might be saying to the folks in detention, is between fighting us and being in detention and then getting deported or just getting deported. And so which do you want? Now, I don't think that's right. But if ICE is trying to discourage people from exercising their rights to challenge their deportation, maybe that's what detention is for. In a written statement, ICE has said that the raids are a result of the recent negotiations between Iraq and the U.S. They call what they're doing processing the backlog. But the statement said something else as well. It said that folks who are being detained have been convicted of some pretty serious crimes. Crimes like, quote, homicide, rape, aggravated assault, kidnapping. It would be misleading to say that most of the people picked up in this raid are dangerous criminals. Remember, two-thirds of them had convictions for nonviolent crimes. As for the rest of the community, I think it's important to note just how caught off guard they were by this. Even though Trump ran a anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim campaign of deportation, they did not think that they were part of that group. Trump explicitly talked about the persecution that Christians face so many times that they thought they were going to be protected by his administration. In fact, a significant number of Chaldeans voted for Trump in a state that he won by only 11,000 votes. Wissam thinks the fact that so many Christians were rounded up in one day 
wasn't a mistake. What we're sort of gathering at this point is that this was a uh, purposeful hit, rather Machiavellian, actually, to sort of get their Muslim ban through uh, with the Supreme Court. Because again, this is a Christian community. And so by targeting us in such a shock and awe sweep that was going to be all over the media, it makes the Muslim ban look less like a Muslim ban. Because the administration can now say, hey, we're deporting Middle Eastern Christians as well. Jihan is back home with one of her daughters. Her lawyer has already filed a petition to change her status, and that court case will begin in mid-November. If it goes well, there's a chance she could have a green card by this time next year. I talked to her, and she's scared and stressed out and didn't want to be on tape for this story. She's still in a lot of pain, and for a month after she got out, ICE held on to her driver's license, making it hard for her to get around. When we talked, she told me there was a part of her that would rather give up and be sent back rather than wait all these months to find out what happens. Until now, the Chaldean community didn't really see themselves as any different from other Americans. They'd been in the country for decades and spoke English, marked white on their census form. They owned businesses and were super integrated into the community. And then suddenly this raid happened, and they realized that they're still immigrants. The Chaldean Assyrian community never really identified with the immigration struggle. They never looked at immigration conversations and thought that they were involved in that or had any identification with that. And I think now it's easy for them to, to take a step back and say, look, we, we were there. It happened to us. And they are a part of this conversation now as well. Since the beginning, I've been struck by this story because it shows the intersectional experience of immigration and politics and religion and the unpredictability of like buying into something like an immigration policy that's supposed to help your community but can be used against others, and then it turns on you. And we're going to be dealing with that a lot more because Trump just signed a new travel ban. So earlier this week, the second travel ban expired and President Trump immediately signed a new proclamation of travel restrictions, which people are calling Travel Ban 3.0. The new version has a few different restrictions and the list of countries has changed. It's now Syria, Iran, Libya, Yemen, and then they've added North Korea, Chad and Venezuela to the list. Uh, we want to talk to someone who could give us a little bit more context on this and the legal battle ahead. Um, you know, we've already done a series when the first band came out, and I thought it was time to check in. So we called up Bahir Azmi, who is the legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Hi, Bahir. Hi, how are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. So how would you describe the new ban? What's what's different about it from the, the last two? This new ban has been dressed up with a kind of legal formalism designed to mask the really obvious discrimination that was so present in the prior two bans. This ban adds two non-Muslim countries, although ones with negligible to nothing immigration, and takes a couple of countries off the, the list. And its basis uh, has changed. It's at least presented basis is because these countries have failed to share adequate security information with the United States. And that's an attempt to make this look like not the Muslim ban that it is. It's designed to make it look 
like a more traditional immigration law that you might see in administrations that are not so consistently committed to targeting Muslims in rhetoric and deed. Well, one thing that's fascinating to me as somebody who is following along is North Korea's appearance on the list is interesting because I don't think there's very much immigration between the two countries. So what exactly is it preventing? And I, I guess the and it also is funny because I think the the original for me the original reason for the ban is to make good on this promise that the Obama administration's policy, according to Trump, was letting in too many bad seeds, right? So the reality, the, yeah. qu- the question is, how effective a, of a strategy is that going to be? Right. I mean, they've they've added North Korea and Venezuela in, in limited way as a kind of tiny pretext or cover. And I don't think that will do very much work itself to save the ban for the reasons you identify. I mean, who's who's permitted to come in from North Korea anyway? Mm-hmm. There's not a massive foreign national migration from that place. Can but, I ask a question about that? Yeah. Yeah. So what's the historical precedent in the law for immigration restrictions from diplomatic relationships? Like, wh- how would you compare it to, like, our relationship with Cuba before the Obama years? And so, that's legality. Right. I mean, I think this takes us back to the context of the first two bands. So, you know, when we used to talk about the first two bands, we would always start by saying everyone acknowledges, for better or worse, the executive branch, the president has enormous discretion to control immigration mm-hmm. so that for if for diplomatic reasons, he wanted to ban everyone from Cuba or Venezuela or Zimbabwe. OK. And the courts are very reluctant to, to intervene. I think that's what was so remarkable about the court's interventions the first time, because there was absolutely no faith in the courts that what was being done was for any legitimate immigration related purpose. It was so transparently a function of Trump's xenophobia and anti-Muslim bias at the same time that it had zero rational justification. Now that it has this sort of patina of, you know, sort of traditional immigration enforcement kind of narrative or justification, it's not clear what the courts will do. I mean, I think the the big question is how can you, if this order were issued in January instead of the first one, I'm fairly confident the courts would have said, we're not going to do anything about it. The question is, will, will the courts still look at the pre-existing evidence of massive bias mm-hmm. and hatred and apply it to this newly, you know, this attempted sanitized version. So there's, there's room for intent, prior intent, as for when the justices consider our, a decision like this. Yes. I mean, it's the, it's the thread. They're just transforming it and tinkering with it in, in simple ways in order to evade the court's review but it's still motivated by the same, you know, there's probably, a, there's got to be a, a physics analogy I'm not aware of that, that explains how tethered these things are to each other. Can we talk about the legality of, of tweets and Donald Trump's tweets? Like, what does the effect of him tweeting about bans do for these arguments? Is that u- usable? I mean, I think the, the lower courts said yes. I mean, that's his form of public communication. I mean, there's also ev- other evidence as well. And, you know, the admi- the administration lawyers tried to sort of pass that off as ca- kind of casual or campaign promises, but it's just not credible. I think, you know, I'm thinking of this, this 
1898 case called Plessy versus Ferguson that people might know, which established the doctrine of separate but equal. And there was one great dissenting opinion in that case by a legal giant named Justice Harlan. The decision was eight to one, and the majority said, oh, just because we have two separate rail cars does not suggest that there's racial animus towards blacks. They're being treated equally. And um, Justice Harlan said in this very common sense, realistic way, but we all know what's going on here. It's that intuition that I hope that, that certainly motivated the prior courts before and I hope will motivate this court. We all know what's going on. Let's not turn our blind eye to what's going on and just rely on these like fussy legal formalisms that the administration is trying to sort of propound now to get Kennedy and, and Roberts vote. This is going back to some of the actual uh, logistics of the new ban. Can you talk just quickly about why Sudan was taken out of this, uh, this version and why Chad was added? You know, I'm a bit confounded by that. We've traded one Muslim-majority country for another. And, I, I, you know, I honestly don't know the, the, sure. the answer to that question because the order sort of lists general criteria and, and where countries have failed. And I can imagine Chad had failed the information sharing criteria because it's a very poor and under-resourced country that may not have the kind of databases and resources we would demand. And I suspect also the more dynamic the changes are, the more the administration can say, you know, again, snip away at what we've been talking about, the threat. Oh, no, this is different. We came to this fresh. So how should people prepare? Um, it's been it was signed in on Sunday. What is the yeah. timeline looking like? What are people who, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners have family members from those countries who is going to be affected and what's our, their best legal recourse? Well, um, so lawful permanent residents and people who hold dual nationality, people basically who are, are already here are protected. People who already have visas are protected. It's just anyone new attempting to apply. So, you know, fiancés, right, who want to come here to be with their loved one uh, will have a hard time. And so in terms of Legal challenges. One, we have to see if the lawyers in the current cases can convince the Supreme Court to review this new thing. If not, new legal challenges will have to start over again in the in the lower courts and work their way back up. And hopefully, even if that happens, as happened with the, the prior two, a district court will find that it's also unconstitutional and enjoin it. Uh, and work our way back up to the Supreme Court again. And this sort of, I mean, this is a historic act of discrimination. So it's going to implicate historic legal proceedings. And it's, it seems like we're in a situation where this could just keep happening after each one changes and we'll all have to adapt to the reality. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us, Bahar. Uh, where can people follow your work? So uh, people should know that the Center for Constitutional Rights has been heavily involved in challenging government practices targeting Muslims since the very days after 9-11 to the present. And they can follow our litigation and advocacy work at ccrjustice.org. Thank you, Bahar. Uh, thanks for joining us. Of course. If you see something, you better, you better say something. Nothing at all, nothing at all. 
So before we go, I want to acknowledge that the first 10 days of Muharram started last week, and Ashura will be this weekend. That's an incredibly important and spiritual and powerful time for specifically the Shia community of Muslims. So we're putting together an episode about Muharram and Ashura for next week, and we need your help. If you're going to be observing Muharram this year or Ashura, take us through a day, how it feels like, what you do, how you build community. We'd love to include your responses in the episode, so please send us a voice memo recording. You can email them to us at saysomethingatbuzzfeed.com. If you need some help with the recording or if you want to call into our studio instead, shoot us an email and we'll figure something out. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. And even if you don't have a story, please stay tuned next week because we're going to have a really interesting conversation about Ashura and what it means to celebrate or mourn in America. This episode was produced by Eleanor Kagan, Meg Kramer, Megan Dietrich, and Alex Laughlin. Additional production support from the See Something, Say Something Brain Trust and the Pod Squad. Also, thank you to our newsroom editors, Tina Sussman and Marissa Carroll. Our music is by The Caminas. You can find them on bandcamp.com. You can follow me at RadBrownDads on Twitter or on Tumblr, or you can find me on BuzzFeed.com, the website. Follow See Something, Say Something on Twitter and Facebook, and maybe leave us a little review. And if you have any concerns, questions, or you want to submit to our Maharam story, please email us at saysomethingatbuzzfeed.com. Thanks for listening.